You're listening to KZSU Stanford, 90.1 FM. Hi, Mo. Hi, Hallie. I'm really glad to be here with you tonight at 2 a.m. to talk about feminist ethics of care. 2 a.m. is a little bit late to get most listeners tuned in, so I've been telling a lot of the men in my life that they're not real feminists unless they're listening. Well, that's nice of you. (laughs) Isn't it? (laughs) You have to really motivate people. Anyway, welcome to the inaugural episode of Feminist Philosophy Talk here on KZSU, or as I've been calling it, Feminists Don't Sleep. I'm Hallie Payne. I'm Mohit McKean. And we're live from New York. It's Saturday night. I thought we agreed you wouldn't do that. (laughs) Well, this show is about feminism, so I'm in charge. Oh, Lord. (laughs) So we're here today to talk about feminist ethics of care. But I wanted to start with a story. So I was recently visiting this bookstore in Seattle, and I remember that I'd had one book on my list for a while, ever since a podcast I listened to about Mary Wollstonecraft. I wanted to read A Vindication of the Rights of Women, in the spirit of developing my budding interest in feminist philosophy. But I was perusing the philosophy section, and I couldn't find it anywhere, so I went up to the front, and I asked the guy where it might be. He got up, and he led me over to to the gender studies section, And after thumbing through a few titles, I found it next to texts about sexuality and gender theory. And I don't know if it was a fair feeling, but I sort of felt this feeling of anger. Like I wanted to say Mary Wollstonecraft is a philosopher. She should be in the philosophy section. And it felt to me like her ideas had been relegated to this corner of the bookstore, which is, of course, an excellent corner but that she shouldn't have gotten kicked out of the philosophy section just because she faced head-on this issue of gender. And I feel like maybe it brought up for me some of these fears that many female philosophers might have when they're addressing gender, that they might get pigeonholed or not taken seriously enough, even though it's a really important discussion to bring to the table. Yeah, that seems like a really on-point story given the topic of our day, the ethics of care. I imagine that advocates, especially female advocates of the ethics of care, would also be worried about getting pigeonholed into the gender studies section of the bookstore and not being taken seriously as philosophers. So essentially, the ethics of care is a position that argues that morality has to be taken more serious. Sorry, morality has to take more seriously care and caring relations. Of course, care is seen as a more stereotypically feminine activity It ends with the cold, hard, calculated reason conventionally associated with morality. Right. So feminist advocates of the ethics of care come into the moral philosophy debate arguing that this cold, hard reasoning style of moral philosophy has undervalued key experiences of care, experiences which have been largely the activities of women, not to mention other disadvantaged and disempowered groups in society. And the conversation these women were hearing in moral philosophy had a lot to do with creating abstract, universal, impartial principles for how to live a moral life. Yet, in their everyday lives, women weren't seeing how these principles related to what a good moral life was. Because when you're engaging in care work, abstract, impartial principles aren't going to do you all that much good. Because you really need to have compassion for a particular person. You know, you need to know things about their needs, and you need to sustain a commitment to them in a way that means that you're not this replaceable, impartial agent. Yeah, so these feminists enter the field of moral philosophy and say, hey, we're done with the abstract, removed reasoning. 
Let's revalue emotions as a key way of understanding others. Let's consider partiality is not a bad thing, but an important part of moral life. Let's recognize that people are not really these independent autonomous agents. Interdependence is crucial to human flourishing. And what about the politics of who's writing these books? For example, if I were to write a book arguing for the ethics of care, I might be seen as reinforcing this stereotype that women are all about care while men are all about reason. And heaven forbid I might even send the message that women are supposed to be in charge of caring because they clearly care so much about care. I mean, it all just seems so exhausting. (laughs) Meanwhile, I'll get heaps of positive reinforcement for being woke enough to, as a man, write a book about how moral philosophy should revalue the experiences of women. But that's not really how many of these philosophers see it. What the ethics of care is supposed to be about is this radical restructuring of our notions of morality for both men and women in the private and the public sphere. Hey, but wait a minute. What's so radical about this way of thinking about ethics? Caring seems like a pretty natural, quotidian human phenomenon. Am I missing something about the historical context out of which this view emerges? Well, as usual, Mo, yes, you are missing something. (laughs) So, to break it down, we're coming in on the heels of great moral philosophy giants like Immanuel Kant, who believed that women were so emotional that they could never be rational enough to be full moral agents, let alone citizens. So, emotions and partiality were seen as things that took you further from the truth. And here we have this moral theory coming in that says, what's so wrong with emotions? Why couldn't emotions be a part of a moral epistemology, that thing that gives us information with which we reason? Because looking at a situation completely impartially is A, kind of impossible for us we little humans, and B, maybe not the best way to tackle personal relationships. Yeah, maybe not. For example, let's say I'm your friend, Mo. For the sake of argument, sure. (laughs) Great, so we're friends. (laughs) And let's say you're going through a hard time with family. It's a sign of good moral character if I feel sad and affected by your suffering, because you're my friend. And if I was completely unaffected, but let's say I rationalized that you would be happier if I were there for you, so I do it anyways to maximize my sense of value, I might not be that great of a friend after all. It seems like I should want to be there for you because I feel these partial emotions and I care for you using my emotions as a guide. It's not just that I'm not being a great friend if I fail to do these things, but I'm also missing out on certain moral virtues. Right, which you are. (laughs) Thanks, Mo. (laughs) Anyway, obviously, rationality should play a role in my decision making. I'm not going to be there for you if some other incredibly pressing concern is obviously more reasonable to attend to. But the point is that emotions can and maybe should have a place in moral decision making. There's this caricature I kind of hate of a woman being so emotional that she can't think straight. But the ethics of care tries to counter this by saying what kind of rationality would we have if we allowed no emotion to influence our thoughts whatsoever? This type of rationality would be cold and perhaps just as misguided as someone who only listens to their emotions. So what the ethics of care is trying to do is make space for these sorts of caring relationships. They're making the big point that partial, particular knowledge might actually represent the world better as people actually live in it than abstract knowledge. And given that ethics is meant to provide a guide for living morally, we should honor the particular nature of our experiences. Exactly. And give emotions a place in moral epistemology. That makes a lot of sense. 
Which raises the question, why didn't any of the men think of this in the history, the long history of moral philosophy? Well, I've got this hunch that there's this really problematic sociological phenomenon that's driven the history of moral philosophy to avoid theories like the ethics of care. Men in the West, in the last few centuries at least, were socialized to be rational, productive, abstract thinkers, and calculating. Meanwhile, women were oftentimes socialized to be caretakers, providers, and building relationships within the family. And who was doing the moral philosophy because of sexism? Men. And of course, it's no surprise that we end up with the prevailing moral theories of, this, of the day being fixated on abstract, universal, rationalizing principles, take utilitarianism or the categorical imperative. Yeah, that sounds about right. Feel free to go on. <laughs> well... I think there are two sorts of things happening here. First, I think there's a sexism embedded in how both men and women conceptualize morality, especially within moral philosophy. There's obviously no lack of women moral philosophers that stake out positions related to utilitarianism or Kant, but our very conception of morality has been tainted by these sexist ideas that have kept care outside the realm of ethics. Second, the other thing going on is that the division of labor in society leading to different experiences men and women are taken to have, lead men and women to have different conceptions of what sorts of activities are truly valuable in society. So on the one hand, there's a sexism that pulls both men and women in the same direction, where men and women both exclude care from morality, and on the other, men and women are pulled in opposite directions when deciding what spheres of society morality should speak to, and these two forces kind of push and pull against each other. Right. And this traditional division of labor placed men in the public sphere and women in the private sphere. And as men were doing most of the moral philosophy, they really thought that moral philosophy wasn't about the private sphere because that wasn't their key experience. Instead, moral philosophy was really supposed to be about government and citizenry. It was supposed to be about justice and rights and duties. Um, yeah, and by leaving these private spheres private, this breed of philosophy left women vulnerable to all kinds of injustices that were perpetrated in the home. I mean, you look at domestic violence. These women had limited power to exercise their will. I mean, heck, the idea that raping your spouse was a crime wasn't written into law until the 1970s and didn't become a law in all 50 states until 1993. So we have this pursuit of justice in the public sphere, but very little justice in the private sphere. And in the meantime, the women are engaging in a lot of caring activities where the men are not. And so the moral philosophy about the public sphere had very little to say about care because these men just weren't taking on caring labor. And that was a big part of the problem. When only women or disempowered groups of people are performing caring duties, we get this imbalance that leads to incomplete moral theories in the public sphere, justice without care, and incomplete moral practice in the private sphere, care without justice. And care is this great thing, right? That's part of the appeal of the ethics of care. Care is a way to attune yourself to the needs of others, to become a better person yourself, to grow as a connected member of society. It makes sense why it should be an integral part of theories of morality. But there were many theorists who saw care without justice as heavily tainted and incomplete. Sandra Lee Barkty, sorry, Barkty, for example, argued that feeling empowered by care 
could be a good thing, but because of the subordination of women, it ends up being a bad thing. Women feel good when they are making the lives of others better, they feel powerful, but feeling powerful and having power are not the same. Right. And then we have this philosopher, Shayla Mullet, who takes this a step further and says that in order to care, you cannot be economically, psychologically or socially forced or coerced to do it. And she names this care in a distorted versus undistorted sense. Which brings us into why more men should participate in caring activities fully so that women don't have to be subordinated in positions of care. This is the idea that care should be revalued fully in society to the point where both men and women should want to participate in it. And that's sort of a key point in feminism as well, whether it's intersectional, socialist, radical feminism, what have you. All these subsets of feminism are concerned with eliminating these power structures that relegate women of all races and ethnicities to different degrees, of course, but to subordinate positions in society. Right. And that's what we're trying to get rid of. Yep. And another thing that's been on my mind about dominant moral theories, you know, that's just what I think about. They, <laughs> they tend to treat everyone as fully rational, autonomous agents. But women have frequently had to operate in a world in which not everyone was even fully independent or autonomous. Women and caregivers routinely care for individuals in need of support, whether you're t talking about children and the elderly or the sick and the disabled. Right. And the ethics of care is very conscious of this point. That's why it refuses to start from a conception of human beings as essentially independent and autonomous. Instead, the ethics of care recognizes that humans are relational and interdependent and that care is a vital way, if not the vital way, in which our interdependent nature is manifest. I can't believe that men still haven't figured this stuff out. I mean, I bet there are men in other non-Western cultures that might be more receptive to these points. Mo? <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe there are hints of this thinking in the Indian culture I grew up around. My parents would often make this point to me that American culture always seems so individualistic to them. They would be appalled at how children, American children, would leave their families for college and essentially never come back. Meanwhile, some of my cousins in America, married and with kids, live in the same house as their parents with the expectation that the parents will take care of the kids and eventually the kids of the kids while the kids will take care of their parents in their old age. I don't know if I want to generalize this to all Indians or anything, but I definitely got the idea that my parents were comfortable with an interdependent, family-oriented view of what it means to be human. Virginia held in this big essay about the ethics of care as moral theory, she mentions this as well. Um, she mentions it in reference to Confucian ethics, where concepts like Jen and Ren supposedly come close to this idea of care. And there are many non-Western cultures where there is a much higher significance placed on interdependent relationships, be these family relationships, community relationships, neighbors, what have you. In South Africa, for example, many of the people I met when speaking of South African culture, sort of broadly, mentioned the idea of Ubuntu, this word meaning, from what I gathered roughly, a person is a person through other people or I am because we are. And this concept can be interpreted both in the context of political philosophy and moral philosophy. It's this type of obligation of humanity towards those around you. 
So perhaps when interdependence is more central to a culture's dominant philosophy, care or a concept like it becomes more central to the moral philosophies of these areas. In the U.S., and probably the West more broadly, we see that care was this fundamental part of women's experiences, but because women were pushed so far to the peripheries, it never made it into dominant moral theories, which only came from people in dominant positions in society. So what I'm gathering is it is really important who writes the books and who has a voice and where we find Mary Wollstonecraft in the bookstore, for example. And my intuition based on all of this is that every single person is missing a piece of the story. In my opinion, there is probably no justice without care and compassion and partiality at times, and there is no care without justice and fairness, because both sides of the story are just going to be incomplete without their complement. So all of this abstract moral philosophy could probably benefit from paying more attention to notions like care, and the ethics of care could perhaps benefit from paying more attention to things like universal principles. And in that same line of thinking, cultures that focus a ton on independent success and self-actualization could learn a lot from cultures that care more about interdependence, and vice versa as well. So I guess what this conversation on the ethics of care is leading us to is really a big plug for diversity of voices in the end. Because in crafting any moral theory, which seeks to give us guidance on what a good, virtuous life looks like, we need to know the types of things all kinds of people encounter in their lives and go from there. I mean, that makes a good amount of sense, I think. Yeah, I think so too. I don't think we need to end up with just a straightforward relativism, but there are a lot of things that we need to balance in considering all of these different values. Absolutely. Um, and I think with that, that's probably about it for our first attempt at talking on the radio. I hope you guys learned a little thing or two about the ethics <laughs> of care, or that in this some way got the wheels spinning on something you're interested in bringing to the table. Um, email us at philosophyneversleeps at gmail.com if you have any comments, questions, or ideas for our next show. Thanks for listening.